0: How's everybody doing? <laughs> it was labored, wasn't it? It was, kinda, it was uh, kind of a delayed reaction there. Okay, so um, I had my... I just got to tell you a fun story. So um, I had my first experience as a parent where your kids are just absolutely, like, embarrassed by you. That happened... Um, I'm sure they've been embarrassed by me before, but it was, like, the first time when they, like, actually, like, tried to, like, act like they weren't my kids. Uh, so um, Friday... Uh, And by the way, you know the end of the world is coming soon because it was 70 degrees in Tennessee on Friday in the middle of June, which was bizarre, right? We're like, it's kind of like chilly with the windows down. That's kind of crazy. But anyways, so we drove out. I'd never been out to uh, Sewanee before, and uh, my wife goes, hey, you know, not anything else to do. Let's just drive out there. And she (laughs) said... She goes, there's also a Russell Stover, like, headquarters thing out there. We can take a detour there. And I'm like, that's ah, kind of redneck, but we'll do that, you know? And so if you've done that, I'm sorry. We've done it too, so I'm in the same boat. So, And you have this, this picture of what the Russell Stover, like, depot would be like. And it's not really like this, like, chocolate wonderland like you thought it would be. It's, it's, like, it's like this place for, like, people who struggle with gluttony, and it's just sterile white, but there's just chocolate as far as the eye can see. And... um. I'll just confess, I got a three-pound box of, like, oops chocolate, right? I was going for quantity, not quality, and I'm like, it's three pounds of chocolate for $10. Anyway, so uh, that's not the story. So we're we're going to, um, we're going out towards Suwanee and uh, we're passing, like, the Manchester area, and we've got, like, a pretty sweet 80s mix going on in the car, and uh, <laughs> Take Me Home Tonight by Eddie Money comes on, and so... In the middle of the chorus, I just roll all the windows down on I-24, and I have my fist out the window, yeah. my head halfway out, and, you know, take me home tonight. You just kind of have to do that when that song comes on. And I turn around, and my kids have unbuckled their safety, safety belts, and they've, just like, slid down, <laughs> hoping that no cars see that the guy in the front has children. And my wife's cracking up, and the kids are just like, Dad! Freaking out in the back. And I was like, it's just what you do. Listen, if you're a parent in here, All of you need that time where you drive down the highway and sing an 80s song at the top of your lungs. It's just good parenting. So uh, there you go. Okay. All right. Let's get to the gospel. I'm I'm flailing here. So um, we have been in the gospel of Matthew, the book of Matthew, for quite some time. If you have not been with us, uh, it's the first book of the New Testament. I would make an argument that this is probably the most important book of the Bible And the reason why I say that is, not only is it the teachings of Jesus, it's discipleship training. It kind of teaches not only his disciples, but it teaches all the disciples of Jesus how to live, how to respond to the world around us, how to follow Jesus Christ. Um, The book of Matthew gives us a snippet of the entire story of the Bible. It mentions Genesis. It it foreshadows the book of Revelation. It goes kind of through the entire scope. Of what it is to be a Christian and the kind of existence of humanity. And um, it's a very, very amazing, simple, but but brilliant book of the Bible. And we finished up chapter 13 last week, and we're actually going to be right in the middle of it this week in chapter 14, right in the middle of the book of Matthew. But at the end of chapter 13, Jesus has been doing all these miracles. He's been traveling from town to town. He's been healing people, and he's raised the dead, and he has healed people with leprosy, and he's taught the gospel, and he's done all this amazing stuff. He rolls into his hometown at the end of chapter 13, very small town, about 1,500 people, the, the, the town of Nazareth. He rolls in, and you would think that they would be happy to see him, right? Right? He's famous. Word has gone out. He's done amazing things, but he says that when he rolls into town, it says that everyone was kind of looking at Jesus. They had their arms crossed, and they're like, we know he's doing miracles. We know that he teaches amazing stuff, but isn't his dad just a carpenter? And they, they said, don't his, don't his sisters just live down the street, right? Don't we know his brothers? And basically, it says in, at the end of chapter 13 that the people in his own hometown rejected him because he, he didn't come the way that they wanted him to come. He wasn't a military leader. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't flashy. He didn't wear fancy clothes. And so they rejected him, right? And so what we talked about last week was, do we have a desire to know the real Jesus? Do we place a value on knowing God, right? Who God really is. And then we asked a rhetorical question. I found out recently that I, I, I like those. I ask them a lot, right? We ask the question, do we all respond the same to what we hear, right? Even today, we're all going to hear the Bible. I'm going to read chapter 14 to you, and we'll break it down. But not everyone will respond the same to this, right? Some people will reject it because, honestly, they don't want it. So here's what we're going to talk about today. Chapter 14 is a a. It's a very easy chapter to teach, very neat chapter, We have three pretty phenomenal stories, amazing stories. One of them is very graphic and brutal about the death of John. One of them is about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Another one is about Jesus walking on water. Very famous stories, right? Even if you're not a Christian. And we're going to get to go through those today. And at the end, Jesus is going to give us three things. I didn't come up with these. I'm just going to tell you what Jesus said. Three things that if we do not do these three things, we will sink. So he's going to tell us three things that we have to do, and if we neglect to do these things, it's not going to be good. We're going to fail, okay? And now what we're going to do is we're going to take these three things and we're going to apply it to society as a whole, macro level, right? Then we're going to zoom in and we're going to talk about you and I, right? Do we follow these three things? And we'll get back to that at the end, okay? So if you have a Bible, first book of the New Testament, we're in chapter 14, If you don't have a Bible, we actually had notes handouts, right? The things you take for granted. We actually had physical copies of notes handouts at the front. If you didn't get one of those, everything will be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, if you download that, click on Service Time, Sermon Notes, and you should be ready to rock and roll, okay? So I think we're in good shape, okay? Cool? All right. I'm going to pray. We'll jump into this. And... um, Guys, I hope you appreciate the word of God. Uh, The last thing Kyle prayed for was he said, thank you for the word. What in the world would we do right now if we didn't have the direction from the Bible? What would we do? Glad we have the Bible. Glad we get to teach it. Glad that we can freely sit here and listen to it. And um, what an amazing liberty that we have. Okay. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, Lord, I pray that you keep your hand on us today. God, let's start at the top and work our way down. Father, we pray that you keep your hand on our nation Pray that you keep your hand on our government, God. Pray that you keep your hand on our state and our state government, God. Pray that you keep your hand on our city, Lord, and our local officials. Pray, God, that you keep your hand on the churches in our city, God, and the great nonprofits in our city that we work with. Pray, Father, that you keep your hand on this specific church and us as individuals, God, that we will not only hear what your word has to say today, God, but we will respond to it that we will absorb it, that we will take it to heart, Father. I thank you for every man, woman, and child in this room, God. It is a a blessing just to be with people right now and to be able to, to, to talk about your word, God. Thank you, Lord. We need much healing right now, God, on a macro level and on a micro level. We need a lot of healing. And we just pray, God. We call out to you, Lord. We're sinking and we need help. So, God, we thank you. We love you. Keep your hand on me as I teach, Lord. And um, we do all these things for your glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read a little bit. Let's go back and uh, break it down, okay? So at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, chained him, put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. So if you haven't been here, we talked about a guy named John the Baptist a long time ago, way back in chapter 3. John was called by Jesus himself the most important man that's ever lived, besides Jesus, right? Because John's role was to pave the way for Jesus to come. So he had a huge role. Wasn't for a long time, but the time that he did it, it was a huge role. John would sit. He would tell people to prepare the way for the Messiah. In fact, the Messiah Jesus came to him. John got to baptize Jesus before Jesus started his public ministry. We find out in chapter 11 that John had been arrested and has a momentary time of doubt. He was wondering, did he do the right thing? And Jesus assured John, yes, everything you did was right. And now we find out in chapter 14 that John has been killed, right, by the governor, a guy named Herod Antipas. So verse 1 and 2 is a flashback. And what we learn in verse 1 and 2 is that Herod was very superstitious. He felt guilty about killing John. He heard the news about Jesus, and he said, oh, my gosh. John has come back from the grave. Now he has superpowers and he's gonna come get me, right? He was very, very superstitious. And he saw the ghost of John the Baptist wherever he looked, right? He was paranoid about it. And then you go into the following verses, three and beyond, and we learn how John died and why John died. So, John the Baptist was a prophet. And prophets were not often very popular people because the role of a prophet was to look at civil authority, right, and say, you are sinning. You are doing things that God doesn't like. They would call out the immorality of authority. And in Herod's case, what had happened is Herod cheated on his wife with his sister-in-law, right, Those two got together. John the Baptist looked and and not only said, that's immoral. He said, it's against our law for you to marry that woman. That's your sister-in-law. It's your brother's wife. But that's what Herod did. And because John called out Herod, he was arrested. Now, Herod would have killed John immediately. The reason he didn't, though, the people liked John. The people saw John as a prophet. So Herod was a politician, right? He was worried what the people would think about him, so he did not take John's life immediately. But here's what happened, right? Now, this is where the rubber starts to meet the road a little bit. At Herod's own birthday celebration, his own party, he was getting drunk, right? Had attractive women dancing around, one was his niece. That's a little weird, right? Unless you're from, like, West Virginia. And so, like, just some weird stuff. Sorry, anyone if anyone's from West Virginia, it was just a joke. Sorry. We have to laugh a little bit, right? Okay. I said Kentucky at the nine, and I'm like, that's a little too close. That touches our border. We should go out a little bit further. So <laughs> people just got up and walked out. But at Herod's party, right, they were drinking too much. You had a lot of sexual seduction going around. Herodias, which was Herod's wife and former sister-in-law, she hated John the Baptist because she was called out too, but she had no fear of people and she had no fear of God. So she saw this as an opportunity to set the stage to get John killed. Now listen, here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where it becomes practical for you and I. There is a reason why the Bible says it is a sin to get drunk and high, right? Any intoxication. There is a reason why the Bible says not to be materialistic. There's a reason why the Bible says to stay away from sexual sin. Because all of these things cloud our thinking. And when our minds are not clear, we do stupid things. And God doesn't want you to do stupid things because stupid things hurt you and stupid things hurt other people. Okay? So listen, it is not a sin for you to have a beer with your pizza. Nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin for you to have a glass of wine with your wife on a nice date. Nothing wrong with that. But if you get drunk or if you get high, that is a sin. How dare you, Corey? Because Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. God knows that bad things happen when our minds are not sharp and when they're not clear. So we're to stay away from those things, and we're about to see what happened with Herod, right? When he wasn't sharp, he fell to excess, And seduction and intoxication. The other thing that Herod fell to was he cared way too much about what other people thought about him. Not only was he drunk, not only was he lustful, he cared about what all of his friends thought about him. So while being seduced, he makes a promise, right? He looks at his niece, again, gross, right? And he says, because you've turned me on, you can have whatever you want, right? What do you want? And she says, I want John's head on a platter. Now, Herod knew at that moment that that was not the right thing to do. But he cared... (laughs) He cared more about thumbs up and little hearts and little smiley faces, hugging hearts than he cared about what God thought about him, right? We call it social media. We care more about what people think about us than we care about pleasing and honoring God. Have we all fallen into that trap? Rhetorical, yes. We have all fallen into that trap. But we need to be aware, guys, because at the end of your life, you're not gonna have to answer for what everyone else thinks about you. You're gonna have to answer what God thinks about you. So we need to make sure we are first and foremost doing what the Lord wants us to do, right? And if people don't like that, I mean, I know that kind of sucks at times, but you want to make sure you're square with the man upstairs, all right? So after the execution, John's head was brought to Herodias via her daughter. Guys, that is grotesque. I don't, I don't want you to, like, go, go too crazy with your imagination, but that's pretty sick and disturbing stuff. Imagine this girl walking down the halls with a man's head on a serving tray. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. That would never happen in our world. Ironically enough, if you remember from a couple of years ago, I think it was on the beaches of Libya. They had hundreds of Christians lined up on the shore, sawing their heads off with dull knives and and throwing their heads down on the beach, all because they were Christians Opendoors.com, which is a think tank about Christian martyrdom, says at the very least, this kind of thing happens 11 times a day in the world. Other think tanks, like the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, says they think it happens somewhere in the neighborhood of 246 times a day. So at the very least, we have 4,000 people a year that die similarly to John the Baptist for their faith. On the high end, you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 90,000 people a year that die the way John the Baptist did. We don't think it happens. It doesn't happen in Tennessee, but it happens in places in the world, right? This is a reality. This does happen, okay? So when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd... He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted. It's already late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish, they said. Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down. Because if you weren't here last week, crowds would stand up. The teacher would sit down. He told the crowds, sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces Now, those who were there were 5,000 men. That doesn't include women and children. We'll get to that here in a second. So imagine you just found out that one of your best friends was beheaded, right? Not only that, you're always around crowds. You're always working. It's no wonder that Jesus just wanted to be alone. He just wanted to be alone for a minute. But the crowds found out where he was going. He hopped on a boat going to another place, right? They found out where he was going. They followed by foot. So right when he got off to be alone, he looks at this massive crowd. Now, all of us in this room, I dare say, would get frustrated with the crowd. We're tired. We just lost someone that we really cared about, right? But he looks at the crowd, and instead of getting mad at them, it says he had compassion for them. So he healed their sick. He taught them the good news. Now, look, let me tell you a little bit about something, uh, something about humanity. It can absolutely wear you out. If you're around people enough, this isn't just for a pastor or a leader or a parent or a boss. If you're dealing with people a lot, people can be selfish. People can wear you out. People can be self-serving. Now, here's what we need to remember. Please remember this as you look at humanity right now and sometimes get disgusted by them. The reason people act the way they do is because they don't know Jesus like you might. So when we look at how humanity acts, instead of pushing away from humanity, we need to bring humanity Jesus Christ, right? And so that's what Jesus, he knew that. They're acting like this because they don't have me. So he gave himself to them. He healed their sick. He taught them the gospel. Now, here's what we also have to remember. Though we are called to follow and act as close as we can to Jesus, we are not Jesus. We're called to follow Christ, but we have limitations. There's a reason why God in Genesis 1 and 2 took a break one day, right? Whether you think that's a literal day or a metaphorical day, the point still remains the same, that God rested one day. Did God have to rest? No, God didn't have to rest. He can work all the time, right? The reason why God rested and the reason why taking a Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments and punishable by law if you broke it is because God knows you have to have some alone time. He knows you have to fill up. He knows you have to recharge. He knows sometimes you need to go for a drive or you need to get a cup of coffee. You need that time to read your Bible and to pray and to meditate. So when we love others, we have to love people with balance, We have to love people with wisdom. You can't help everyone all the time. That's a hard lesson I've had to learn, is that I cannot be responsible for all people all the time. And I've also learned as a parent and as a husband that if I don't take a break and let the Lord fill me up, I have nothing to pour out onto my kids. I have nothing to pour into my wife. I have nothing to pour into you. So a glass cannot spill what it doesn't contain. So it must be filled up. That's why you have to have Sabbath. You have to have rest. You have to have balance. So Jesus has this massive crowd in front of him, right? And the disciples walk up and they say, hey, Jesus, they've been standing up for a long time. It's getting late, right? Sundial, I watch, right? It's getting late. Sun's going down. They haven't had anything to eat. Why don't you send them home and let them get some food? And Jesus goes, why don't you give him some food? Okay. So here's the thing. If you have not been with us, the book of Matthew is discipleship training. We're all disciples of Jesus, right? At least I hope we are, right? So we're all learning how to follow Jesus. Now, here's what Jesus is teaching in this moment. He has this massive crowd of people. They're hungry, physically hungry, but the first lesson Jesus wanted to teach his disciples is, listen, Even more than bread for their stomachs, they need the bread of life, the good news. Do you know what we learned from that? This is going to hurt some feelings. The gospel is more important than social justice. Now, wait a second. Those of you who are like, yeah, social justice is still part of the Christian experience. It's just not the first component. The first component is they have to hear the good news. What that means is we can feed every hungry person on planet Earth, but if we don't tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to go to hell fat. We have got to tell people about the gospel. We had a bunch of people leave our church years ago. We have a ministry called 5,000. Maybe some of you even served at it this morning. We had a bunch of people leave several years ago because they said, we don't think we should have to tell the gospel to people when we feed them. And I tell them, if you want to go back to what Jesus did, he shared the gospel first and then fed them because he knew what was most important, right? So the top priority is the gospel. The second lesson he's going to teach them is you have to trust me and respond. He says, you feed these people. And they're like, okay. They didn't know how they were going to do it, but Jesus said do it. So they had to trust him and they had to act. And then the third thing is there is social justice. The people were hungry. The church was called to feed them right? And we're still called to do it today. We're to visit prisons. We're to, we're to help the poor. We're to clothe the naked. Jesus says it. And it is part of the Christian experience is to go out and do social things, right, for our community. And so the disciples, they responded to Jesus. They said, okay, we'll feed them, But we really only have enough food for two people. Thousands and thousands of people. We have enough food for, for two grown men, probably. So Jesus said, bring it to me. So Jesus takes it, right, puts the fish aside, takes the, the, the bread, breaks it, raises it up, thanks God for it. This would have been a very Jewish thing to do, right, blessing the food like this. It's a very American Christian thing to do, right? We thank God for the food that we have. I hope you do that, right? Thank God for the food that we have. But this was more than Jesus just saying, thank you for this food. What Jesus was saying to this huge crowd is, listen to this, if you will listen to me, I will provide for you. If you will take the time to sit with your Savior, I will make sure that you have food. I will make sure that you have everything you need. So it was more than just a blessing. It was a demonstration of God's provision. I'm going to provide for you. I'll take care of you if you just listen. So we always call it the feeding of the 5,000. There's actually quite a bit more than 5,000. It says that there was 5,000 men. It didn't include the women and the children. You're thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 15,000 satisfied people, right? Here's what's interesting about that. (laughs) I remember when this church was small, right? Some people would come, they're like, oh, this is too small for me. I like bigger crowds. Then the church got big, and people were like, this is too big for me, right? I like smaller crowds. Listen, it doesn't matter the size of the crowd, it matters if Jesus is present and if the people are hungry. That's all that matters, right? Doesn't matter if it's 50 people. It doesn't matter if it's 15,000 people. If Jesus is there and the people want to learn from him, listen, not only will you be satisfied, you'll have enough to also take home with you. It said that there was some leftovers, right? They had some of those little styrofoam boxes. Take some fish and loaves home to your family. They didn't really do that, but today they would, right? Take some home or maybe something a little bit more ecological, paper bags or something, I don't know. And so not only do we get enough, Jesus left them with more than they could even handle more than they could ingest, and he sent them away satisfied. All right. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught a hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. So right after the feeding of the 5,000, right? Or maybe we could say 15,000. Jesus told the 12, get into a boat, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to get my alone time, right? I'm going to go up on a mountain. I'm going to pray a little bit and be alone, so they got into the boat. They took off across the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee from, from furthest ends is about eight miles. So imagine at the time when Jesus approaches them, there may be four miles out there or so. Uh, the Sea of Galilee has a reputation for being very, very choppy, very turbulent, right? It says, Matthew says, we were battered by the waves. So they're out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee getting battered by the waves. And now here's the thing. At this point in the book of Matthew, the disciples were not that mature, faith-wise. In in fact, even seeing Jesus feed the 15,000 people, they still had these doubts, right? They still weren't there. That's why Jesus set up this whole walking on water scenario. So around three to six o'clock in the morning, they're out there and they're in the middle of the storm. The wind is against them. The waves are battering. They're tired. They're worn out. And all of a sudden, somewhere off in the distance, you see Jesus walking on the water. And it says that they were terrified, and they cried out in fear, and they said, it's a ghost. Now, let me stop here for a second. We can get really judgmental when it comes to the disciples, right? We read what the disciples went through, and we're like, come on, guys, you saw Jesus raise the dead, and do all these other things, and you just saw Jesus feed all these people miraculously, and you didn't recognize him? How many times in our life has Jesus done amazing things for us, and then a moment of storm comes in our life, and we're like, where is God? Right? How many of us have done it, if we're being honest? A lot of us. So the reason why they acted in fear is they were tired. They were fatigued. Another reason why they thought they saw a ghost is they were very, very superstitious. There was a lot of superstition in Jewish culture. There's a lot of superstition in American Christianity. We say a lot of stuff that is nowhere biblical, right? Oh, there's ghosts around me. There's this and that. I'm like, no, no. There might be evil around you. Guys, let me tell you something. Ghosts don't haunt buildings. Demonic spirits haunt people, right? You don't need to, like, lay hands on brick and mortar and cast ghosts out. You need to be making sure that there's no evil within your heart, right? Devil doesn't care about your home. He cares about you. Anyways, as a side note. So, the men responded with fear. And so, Jesus is a compassionate teacher. When they said he was a ghost, Jesus wasn't like, hey, dummies, it's me, right? We've been hanging out for years now. He didn't do that. (laughs) He's a compassionate, good teacher. He looks at him, and he says three things, and we're going to go back to this, okay? This is going to be the crux of our lesson today. He says, have courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. Have courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. We're going to go back to that. And now we come to Peter. (laughs) Peter's one of the funnest people in the entire Bible, right? Later on, Peter's going to get mad and cut off a guy's ear, and Jesus picks up and Peter, what are you doing? You know, sticks it back on a guy's head. Peter's a fascinating individual. And though Peter eventually becomes the leader of the Christian movement, right? At this point, he has faith, but he's not full of faith. He says, if it's you, Jesus, ask me to come out into the water. He's very impulsive. He's very immature at this point. But again, God's eventually going to flip his life around. And so Jesus says, come on. So Peter, right, goes up. Takes a step out, steps on the water, doesn't sink, right? Puts his other foot there. And as he's looking at Jesus, this is so important. As he's looking at Jesus, he can walk on the waves. And so he's looking at Jesus. He's walking on the waves. And it says, here it comes. Listen, this is so important. When he took his eyes off Jesus and he started looking at the chaos around him, he started to sink. As he took his eyes off the Savior and started to look at how strong all the chaos was around him, he started to go down. And as he started to go down, he recognized that he was sinking and he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately, I love that word, immediately reaches out, grabs Peter's hand, pulls him up and says, why didn't you believe? Peter, you've seen me do so many miraculous things. Why didn't you believe? Now, listen, we can all identify with Peter. I think Peter is so talked about in the Bible because Peter is us. He encapsulates the Christian experience. And there are so many lessons in this story about Peter walking on the water, right? The first one is we have to have faith to step into the unknown. Let me tell you something about God. God is never going to tell you to step into something so you can sink, ever, So when Peter says, call me out there, Jesus says, come on, I got you. And he steps out there. How did he know that he could stand on water? You're not supposed to be able to stand on water. But Jesus knew that the master called him out. So Jesus steps into the unknown. or So I'm sorry, Peter steps into the unknown. We also learn that God is in control even when it doesn't look like it, Right. Jesus is in control, right? Jesus is saying, Peter, keep your eyes focused on me. Don't worry about the waves. I made the waves. Don't worry about the wind. I made the wind. Don't worry about all these other things. Don't worry about the boat. I made the trees that made the boat. Jesus was sovereign. He had it all under control. He was just saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Keep your eyes on me. We also learn that all of us are going to sink at times. Because all of us get battered by the waves and we take our eyes off Christ. But in those moments when we're sinking, if we would just be humble and say, Lord, save me, Jesus immediately grabs the hand, pulls us out, right? Peter is us. Peter is the Christian experience. We're all going to make these mistakes. We're all going to go through these trials. And now at this point, right, they pull Peter onto the boat. The ship reaches the shore. The winds calm down. And these men who have seen Jesus do all kinds of things finally say, you're the son of God. What had happened is this, is the disciples had crossed a threshold. doesn't mean that they weren't going to make more mistakes. We're going to read about more mistakes that they make, but they had crossed the point of no return, right? They are in. We are in. We're still going to fall. We're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to need grace and forgiveness. But at this point, they were in, Okay. Look, I made a little post-it note because I kept mispronouncing this word. I'm going to read to you over and over again. So I wrote it phonetically. When they had crossed over, they came to the shore of Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all that were sick. They begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe. And as many as touched it were healed. So why is this important? When they get to this territory, the people of this territory realize who had just landed, and it's the exact opposite situation that happened when Jesus went to his hometown. When Jesus went to his hometown, they're all just kind of like, "Eh." When Jesus landed in Gennesaret, they were like, "Jesus is here. Get the sick." Get the lost. Get everyone in town. Let's go. Jesus is here. We don't even have to talk to him. If I can just touch the tassels on his robe, my life will be changed forever. And so they were excited. And so they brought everyone they could to go meet Jesus because they knew that Jesus would transform their lives. So why is this important? This little small section. It's important because in Jesus's time, the religious leaders didn't want to hang out with messy people. They didn't want to address the mess. They didn't want to hang out with people that voted differently than them. They didn't want to hang out with people that struggled with sexual sin. They didn't want to hang out with people who asked hard questions. They didn't want to hang out with poor people or those who had made bad mistakes. Religious people didn't want to hang out with them. But Jesus did. It's the whole reason why he came. The whole reason why he came was for people that were lost and confused and who had made mistakes and who were sick and who were struggling. So, this last little passage is important because Jesus didn't come for a certain color or a certain nationality or a certain economical standpoint. That's not why he came. Jesus came for any human that wanted to get to know him. That's beautiful, that's progressive. That's mind-boggling. That's earth-shattering information. That Jesus doesn't care what you look like. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care any of those things. He just wants you to have a desire to want to know him. And the Bible even says if we will just draw near to him, he draws near to us. James says that he knocks on the door of our heart wanting to come inside and eat with us. He wants to sit down with us. Anyone, Right? Our problem is, though, this chapter exposes to us enemies of faith. If you go back and if you reread chapter 14 tonight, if you just get bored, right? If you didn't hear it enough today, if you go back and read chapter 14, everyone in chapter 14 had a faith crisis, all of them, except for Jesus, right? All these people had faith crises, even the disciples. Herod had a faith crisis, his sister-in-law wife had a faith crisis his daughter-in-law niece right sounds like a bad soap opera she had a faith crisis even the disciples had a faith crisis and in chapter 14 we see why these people had a faith crisis Herod had a faith crisis because he cared more about the approval of other people than he cared about the approval of God how many of us fall to this right If we care more about what people think of us than we care about what God thinks about us, that is a crisis, right? That is an enemy of faith. We can never have a genuine faith in Jesus if we care more about being accepted by people than we care about being accepted by God. We can never have genuine Christianity. It's impossible. We can never have genuine faith if we live in fear. That doesn't mean that we walk around and we see people who wear masks and we judge them. Oh, they're living in fear. No, let me tell you something about that. My mother-in-law has a form of cancer, right? And she wears a mask because she has no immune system. She's not living in fear. She's being wise, right? She has a compromised immune system. That's not the kind of fear that this is. This is an irrational fear. This is a fear that believes that God is not in control. If we have this fear of the future, this fear of what's going to happen to us, fear all the time, that is an enemy of faith. Fatigue is an enemy of faith just getting tired that's why we have to have sabbath that's why we have to rest that's why you need to take some time to pray take some time to go for a drive out in the country take some time to fill up because fatigue is an enemy of faith distraction is an enemy of faith man we live in a culture right now guys it's not enough to watch netflix we have to watch netflix have our laptop open and have our phone right here we're doing three things right And we're still bored in three things. That's how it looks right there. Just do it just like that. (laughs) But we're so distracted, right? There's distraction all the way around us all the time. There's so many different noises and sounds and everything else. That's why David said you need to be still and just know that he's God. Just be still, be quiet. Materialism, right? We think if I can just live in that neighborhood, I'll be happy. If I could just drive that car, I'll be happy. If I can just wear those clothes, I'll be happy. If I can just have these things, right? That's, that's an enemy of faith because we've hung on too much to those things. Control, guys, this is where I feel conviction. I don't know if there's any other control people in here. Dude, this is a rough year to live if you're a control person because you can't plan anything, right? Let's plan this. Ugh, we can't, right? Let's do this. I don't know if we can. And that's very, very hard, but that's an enemy of faith because I have to put my faith in Christ. He's in control. I don't need to be in control. He's in control. Lust is an enemy of faith. It's an obvious one, right? We do stupid things when it comes to like wanting sex or wanting that kind of pleasure. We lose our minds. Now, here's the thing, guys. Let me, let me show you this. If we give in to any of those blue things up there at the top, not only will we hurt other people, our faith will be stagnant. Not only stagnant, we can even go back to being ambivalent. You guys ever met those people? Once upon a time, they were all about Jesus. They walk away because they fall to one of these things. And not only do they step away from Christianity, they hate Christianity. They're angry towards it. They're ambivalent towards it. It's just like Peter when he's on the water. When we're looking at Jesus, it's fine. We can walk in the middle of all the storms, but whenever we start looking at these things, right, it's when we start sinking down. This is what is happening to your society. This is what is happening to your culture. It's what a lot of you are experiencing right now. We've become distracted. Our eyes have got onto other things, and as a people, we are sinking. We're sinking. So what does Jesus say, right? Right? Listen, let's go back. What does Jesus say when the disciples, his followers, that's us, guys. I hope everyone sees all the metaphors today. What does Jesus say when his followers are in the middle of a crazy storm? What does he say? The first thing he says is have courage. Be willing to address the storm. Be willing to do what is right. Be willing to say we have a problem and we need help. That is the first thing Jesus tells us to do is you have to want to address the mess. That means if you struggle with pornography, you have to say, I have a struggle with pornography. And then Jesus says, all right, we can deal with that because you have now had the courage to address the problem. I struggle with alcoholism. I struggle with materialism. I struggle with hatred. I struggle with racism. I struggle with whatever people struggle with. The first step is we have to have the courage to walk towards the mess and not run away from it and stick our head in the sand. There is a storm. We have to address it, and we have to admit that we need help with the storm. Have courage. The second thing he says is know who I am. Not the American Jesus, not the hippie, turn a blind eye to the bad things we do because God is love, Jesus. It's way out of context, right? You know humanity knows two scriptures in the Bible. Don't judge and God is love. That's all we know. And we take them way out of context and we have no idea what Jesus and John said when he used both of those passages. We have to know the biblical Jesus, Not the Jesus we manufacture. Not the Jesus that the History Channel tells you about. Not the Jesus of of different movies. We need to know the biblical Jesus. Now here's why. Guys, here's where it all, here's where the engine turns on. When we learn who he is, we start to learn who we are. Let me tell you why that's important. We live in a culture right now that is trying to find its identity in everything. My identity is in my sexual preference, it's in my skin color, it's in my nationality, it's in my political party, it's in how much money is in my bank account. And the problem with society and the problem with a lot of us in this room right now is life ends up falling flat over and over and over again because you're not made in the image of your skin color, you're not made in the image of your economic situation, you're not made in the image of the United States or the Democrat Party or any of those things. The Bible says you're not slave or free, you're not male or female, you're not Greek or Jew, we are all one under Jesus Christ. And until we find, hold on, until we find our identity in Him first, we will always be frustrated. There will always be chaos. There will always be division and racism and bigotry because we are trying to put a square peg into a round hole and it will never fit. You're not made in the image of any of those things. It's not to say that your nationality is not valuable, it's not saying that your skin color is not valuable. Those things are valuable, but it's not your number one identity. Your identity is found in Him. We are all one under him. You're the only thing ever created to look like God. And the problem is is we have made our God politics and money and sex and color and country. And that's why we're broken. That's why we're broken. and that's why we're afraid reason why we're hateful. It's a reason why we're divided. It's a reason why there's divorce. It's a reason why there's kids that are hungry. It's a reason why we have a corrupt system. Because we don't know where our identity really lies. Have courage. Address the mess. Know who Jesus Christ is. And when you know who he is, you start to understand who you are. Made in the image of God. Loved by him. Look at this. Let me show you. And we have come to know and to believe. Look at how, look at that. You can miss it if you're not looking. We have come to know, which means I know God loves me, but we've also come to believe. We have put it in our hearts, the kind of love that God has for us, that God would send his only son while we were sinners to die for us. John says God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. You know what that means? You're not going to go to hell. You know what that means? You're not going to suffer God's wrath. You don't have anything to be afraid of. You may suffer man's wrath. And Jesus said, don't be afraid of people that can hurt your body. Be afraid of the one that can cast your soul into hell. You don't have to be afraid of what humans think of you. Be afraid of what God thinks of you. Because as He is, so also are we in the world, there is no fear in love. When God is in our heart, there's no room for that. There's no room for hatred. There's no room for racism. There's no room for fear. There's no room for division. Because perfect love drives those things out. There's no room. So the one who fears is not complete in love. Let me tell you what this means. It's it's, it's quite simple, and it'll be the most underwhelming thing you ever hear in a church. All of your problems as an individual, all of our problems as a society and a people, go back to one problem, our proximity to God. Listen, and let me tell you something. There is no room in the Christian's heart for fear. There is no room in the Christian's heart for hatred. And let me tell you something about hatred. The only kind of hatred that a Christian can have, I hope you're hearing me during these times where there's a lot of hate to go around. And the Bible says, don't return evil for evil. So Christians are not to return hate for hate. The only hatred that a Christian is allowed to have is a hatred for evil, not a hatred for evil people. You're to love the white supremacist. (laughs) You're to love the radical Muslim that wants to kill you. You're to love the kid that throws a brick through a window of a local boutique. Jesus says, love those that hate you, pray for those that persecute you. The only evil that the Christian can have, or I'm sorry, the only hatred that a Christian can have is a hatred towards evil, not evil people, but what drives those people to do what they do. We're to hate that, but we're to love them. There's no room in the Christian's heart for hatred, and there's no room in the Christian's heart for hopelessness. Jesus told us this world is going to fall apart. He told us that. He says, take courage, because I've already conquered it, right? I'm going to come back and restore it, but it's going to go to hell before he does. The reason why families fall apart is there's a problem with our proximity to Jesus. The reason why nations fall apart is because there's a problem with the people and their proximity to Jesus. The reason why we slip into these things is because we're not as close to Jesus Christ as we should be. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If we want to make it personal, I'll just go ahead and confess it to you. Man... I can fall into hopelessness very, very easy. I'm a pessimistic person. It's something I need to work on. It's not a good thing. I can easily fall into hopelessness. I can easily fall into despair, melancholy, however you want to say it. And I know that when I start sliding into hopelessness, I have a spiritual problem. I have not been talking to Jesus the way I should. It's something that I need to work on. I don't know what you slide into. Anger? Some of you are angry right now, and it's not okay. It's not that it's a sin to get angry, but how you act in that anger, some of us need to repent. (sighs) Maybe fear, maybe you're constantly worried. It's not God's design for you to be constantly worried. It's not God's design for you to be constantly hopeless. We have a hope, we have a security. If you're in this room and maybe you've fallen victim to some of these temptations, maybe you don't have a relationship with God or you have questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Greg is up here. He's our executive pastor. He'd love to talk to you. If you're in this room and you need prayer for anything, anything at all, anything, there are men and women on both sides of the stage that would love to pray for you. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, you should have received communion when you walked in. Now, let me tell you a couple of things about that. The first is this. Listen, that communion is very, very sacred to the people that take it. So if you're going to have a conversation or talk, please go out in the foyer or go outside or please be respectful of the people around you who are taking communion, okay? Because that communion is very sacred. It represents just how much Jesus Christ loves us, that he would give his body that he would shed his blood so we can be healed, so we can be saved. All of you are welcome to take that communion as long as you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I love this church. I love the men and, the, men and women in this room. Lord, all of us in this room have sunk at one time or another because we have taken our eyes off you. Father, my prayer for myself, my prayer for everyone who can hear me right now, everyone watching online, is that we will get closer to you, God. And every step we take in your direction, Lord, you draw close to us. So, Father, Lord, let us be people of prayer. Let us be people of of meditating and resting and thinking about you, Lord. Let us be people that read the word. God, let us be people that when we look at others, that we see them not as enemies, Lord, but we see them as other humans made in your image, that we love them, that we understand that the reason why the world is acting the way it is, is because they're distant from you. So Lord, we don't need to push away from people. We need to push into people. We need to teach them about you and show them love. God, we need your help, Lord. We are desperate and we cry out, Father, Lord, we're sinking. God, keep your hand on us, Lord. Keep your hand on my friends and family in this room. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys so much.